0: Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. One of the surest ways of showing one's vintages is to, is to talk about the books one enjoyed as a boy. I'm afraid like a lot of my generation, I grew up on an unadulterated diet of Enid Blyton and Rich Crompton and all the English school stories in a windswept village in the west of Ireland, reading about how a good British boy should behave himself. But I graduated to a novelist who is an absolute joy to read still as an adult. One of those children's novelists who's really um, a bit like uh, Kenneth Graham and The Wind and the Willows. I mean, it's an absolute shame to confine them to childhood because you need to read them as a kid and then digest them again later, and they stay with you. And that's Rosemary Sutcliffe, the great Rosemary Sutcliffe, a wonderful, rip-roaring adventure novelist. The book I was given that was pressed into my hand by some blessed person, I think it was an aunt, was called Warrior Scarlet by Rosemary Sutcliffe. And it was set in a Celtic tribe, I think prior to the Roman invasion, so about 2000 years ago, in Britain. Celtic tribe in Britain. And in this tribe, the warriors wear scarlet. Now in Ireland, the warriors, as we know, wore saffron because saffron was imported and was poisonously expensive and only the the nobility could afford it. So saffron was the mark of an aristocrat. Um, but in this tribe it's scarlet. And when a boy comes to, to puberty, comes to, into early adolescence, his mother starts weaving on the loom his warrior scarlet. The scarlet cloak that he will throw over his shoulder to mark him out as, as a noble, as an aristocrat in the tribe, as opposed to those who mind the sheep and the goats up in the hills. But to get your scarlet, you must hunt, corner, and face down, I think with nothing more than a knife in your hand, a wolf fully grow. And you must kill your wolf. And our hero corners his wolf, And fails to kill him and he comes home that evening and his mother is weaving the Scarlet cloak on the loom in their clay and wattle cabin and he says to her to keep it for his brother I have lost my warrior Scarlet and the mother starts to keen as if he were dead and now he has to go to the hills to live with the the shepherds he may not be a warrior he meets a, a tutor in the hills a wise man who teaches him, he comes of age, and he finally corners his wolf, kills his wolf, and earns his scarlet. It's a a mighty story for a boy to read. Now the agon is a major part of the old Greek plays. The agon, from which we get the word agony, the agon was the contest. And it was a part that the whole audience of a Greek play would look forward to. There were various parts to the play and the agon was the central thing, depending on the kind of play it was. And here we have the agon in the confrontation with the wolf. Now, I think I'm telling you that if you're a Catholic and if you're serious about it, and by being serious about it, I may be speaking to somebody who hasn't gone to Mass in 10 years, but you're troubled by it. That means you're serious. You might still go to hell, I can't govern that. That's between you and God. But you're serious. You're a serious player. Do you remember I said that there, are, there are people in Mount Joy who are good Catholics? And there are people going to mass every Sunday who are on the, on the way to hell. And th- that's an old warning. The old people always talked like that. So, I'm asking, have you met your wolf? Have you earned your warrior scarlet? Have you made, as I've said a hundred times already in these podcasts, have you faced your decisions? And with them, your demons. Have you earned your warrior scarlet? Are you a child of the holy agony? Because if you're not, you're not in the game. You're not cast in the play. You're not even in the stage crew. You don't have a ticket. You pay for your ticket in this theatre. In blood. That's a shocking thing to say. But I don't, I mean it literally in some ways, but metaphorically in, in others. You must be a player. You must suffer. You must go to the core of human experience. And right to the edge. Catholics are children of the edge, liminal. We are children of the holy agony, the contest, the fight, the decisive meeting. I don't know if you're familiar with the work, uh, for want of a better term, of the tremendously successful Irish comedian, Tommy Tiernan, a man who, as far as I know, is no stranger to spirituality. And I believe no stranger to suffering and, and challenge as well. He has many excellent jokes and some that I, I, I wouldn't think much of, but I heard him tell a story. It was quite hilarious. A lot of it was in the telling. It really encapsulated the Greek, the Greek skill of sp- uh, what they call Spudogelion. Uh, I, I joke in earnest. To, to Tell the truth through a joke, a great truth through a joke, through a silly story. Tiernan has this, it's kind of a skit on these corporate weekends, you know, where you go off to try to bond a team together and find yourself, as if you can find yourself in a weekend like, you know, but you can see what they're trying to do. They're kind of a bit of a take as well and apparently a bit more than a bit of a take on Catholic school retreats, apparently they've skimmed shamelessly off them. Um, And so, you know, you'd have this gang of executives who go off to find themselves. And Tyrion has this thing where this, this boss, he's totally full of ennui and, and alienation and he's fed up. So he, he finally, he loses it completely and, and he, he, he feels he has to commune with nature. He, he must have an adventure. He must face the beast and kill it and bring it home. So he tears off his clothes in a frenzy, strips himself naked as a bird and runs, racing across the bog and into the forest in the middle of an Irish winter. And he's there running through the briars and the nettles and the pull, as Pat Shortwood said, the pull and dragon. And he goes deeper and deeper into the forest and finally he meets it. Standing in a forest clearing, he meets the mythical beast. In any other country you'd be facing a terrifying bear or perhaps a huge timber wolf or a panther or a jaguar. But this is Ireland and standing in the clearing is the deadliest animal to be found in an Irish forest. And he is facing a badger. And he's meeting the badger of destiny. So they look at each other and it's like, it's like one of the spaghetti Westerns. Do you remember where the camera used to play on the eyes back and forward? Okay. The badger looks at him and he looks back at the badger and they play mind games and stare each other out. And then finally, it begins. They join the issues, they lock in battle and it begins the epic clash of man and badger. The battle is fierce. It is merciless with no quarter asked or given. It goes on all night and into the early hours Both sides are lying on the ground, covered in cuts and wounds, exhausted by loss of blood and exhaustion and and, and all the rest of it. Monday morning. The office. Everyone sitting at their desks. Starting the week. Turning on computers. Suddenly dead silence comes across the office. A silence so deep that you could touch it. Because standing in the middle of the floor, having just stepped out of the lift, is the boss. Covered in bruises and cuts and blood and mud and nettles and thorns and thistles and sheep wire. Hanging out of him, his hair standing on in, the two eyes standing in his head. Like a man who has been to the very edge of reality. And he stares at them, and he says to them, there's going to be changes around here. Meet the badger. (laughs) Now Tiernan tells it much better, but I get a kick out of it. It's a bit of a pee take on an absolutely huge literary and legendary folkloric image or theme. That one clash, that point of decision, that point at which a man or woman meets their destiny and faces it and wrestles with it. And that's what I want to continue with today. Because it is absolutely crucial I I realise I'm in danger of repeating this literally ad nauseam to the point of making people sick. But it cannot be said too often because it's being dodged continually. Please, face the issue of faith in your life. It is life or death. You have no concept as to how short this life is. You have no concept of how much is to be won here. If we were business people, you would certainly not dismiss the possibility of an investment here. As the philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal never tired of pointing out, for a relatively modest investment, at a minimum, let's say you don't become a saint, you just become an absolutely hopeless Catholic, but you manage to get into heaven on grace and forgiveness, okay? which is, I suspect, what quite a few of us manage. Let's say you do that. At a very, you're looking at a minimal investment for everything, for all eternity. On the other hand, if you don't, you look at losing the lotto multiplied by 50 million light years. What is at stake here is absolutely epic. And and it, it terrifies me. It terrifies me that people are not Facing into this and I blame everything I blame us I blame the priests I blame the way we're preaching I blame the media too which are are so determined to turn out a pasteurized safe boiled to death carefully sanitized version of life they've turned the dark forests and profound ravines and endless vistas of life into a sort of golf course where there's there's water, but it's not too, too deep, and there's rough, but it's not too rough, and there are hills, but they're not too high. This crazy stuff, the ravines are real, the danger is real, the opportunity is real. Don't you realise this? what's being done to you is being done to you? Not because it's a conspiracy, it's, if you like, an unplanned conspiracy, it's happening naturally. People are doing what's necessary to maintain peacefully and in an orderly manner a huge civilization. You're going to have to be like a spy. Live a double life if you have to. Play your games if you have to. Pay your dues. Turn up in the morning in your shirt and tie. Do what's expected of you. But for goodness sake, don't take it seriously. For goodness sake, don't trust it. There are people wearing beautiful suits and shirts and ties in caskets. I've seen people being buried to look better than they ever did in life. Don't be taken in by this. Please don't be taken in by this. We are being encouraged to dodge the really big decisions and you're being deprived of your warrior Scarlet. You're being deprived of your heritage. You're being deprived of your birthright of what's yours. You're made for this. You're made for the confrontation. You're made for the holy agony. You're made for Gethsemane. And you're made for Golgotha. And you are made for the resurrection. You are made for it. You have everything you need for it, not least, and indeed most, God's grace. I I, I long for the day as a priest. I long for the day. When people stop talking a load of rub, people who have no faith, no belief in God, who don't believe in God, who believe there's no God, when they have the courage to stop talking rubbish around death, oh, we're not going to have a Mass, if only they would spare the Mass, if only they would spare the sacrilege that some of them are committing, we'll get closure with a ceremony, how do you get closure from this? You have no faith and no hope for the future, how do you get closure on that? For God's sake, even if you're a believer it's hard to get closure on this. How do you get closure on it? What sort of Egypt are you? Do you not realise the decision you've made? I'm not disrespecting your decision. I'm disrespecting your lying and cheating and, and pretending you haven't made it. I'm disrespecting your disrespect for yourself. I'm calling on you to respect yourself. Even if you won't come with us, for goodness sake at least don't lose your soul like this. We get closure on this. There's no closure for you. You have no hope. This is a disaster that is irremediable. If you had any sense you'd get drunk and go out and pick a fight on the street. That's a way to do that. That was the ancient way to cope with funerals. It was the way the old peasantry coped with it and some of the travelling community who stick to the old ways still do it it may not be pretty it's an infernal nuisance socially it creates a huge policing problem and a public safety problem but it actually does have social intelligence and emotional intelligence it does answer to our genes death is a catastrophe it is a catastrophe if you have faith it is still terrifying it is clear that christ was afraid of what was coming in the garden of gethsemane Humanly and Kavanaugh, Paddy of the poet said that he never felt closer to him than he did to that coward Christ in the garden That that was when he felt closest to him when he sweated blood because he saw what death meant and he saw what was coming He understood it profoundly I've said to you before a hero who is not afraid is just a fool Real heroes are always cowards at heart A hero is a coward who stands his or her ground. Who somehow manages to stand his or her ground. In the case of a Catholic, often by faith. In the case of a Christian, often by grace. So if you don't have faith, I beg you to follow the logic of it. There is no comfort. And if you come to me and you say i've no faith no belief my father had no faith no belief but i want you to give him a catholic funeral because i might find it comforting i will say to you for goodness sake man for the love of god woman will you have respect for yourself and respect for your dead there is no comfort if you face that anything can happen you remember My quotation in the last podcast or last but one, I think, was, you know, the American saying, if you turn up for work, this is turning up for work in the game of life, where you face yourself, where you face the truth, where you enter into the agon, the holy agony, where you face the badger, where you face the wolf. There is no getting around this. If you dodge it, you're lost. Authenticity. Real humility, coming from the Latin word humus, meaning soil. Real contact with reality. A living of reality. Nobody's asking you to go around with your tongue out, licking the pavement. Nobody's asking you to allow yourself to be used as a carpet by every tuppence hapenny little bully in the workplace. There's a time for putting up with something like that and a time for standing up to it. And that takes judgment. Nobody's asking you to do that. For a start, What we are called to do is face ourselves. That's what confessions are about. And it is then in communion that the human being, stripped of all rubbish and plomos and goobah and nonsense and clad in glory, the glory of God's love and forgiveness, goes forth to meet the Lord. I don't know if you've come across Bresson's striking film, Diary of a Country Priest. It's the film version of uh, Georges Bernanot's famous novel. And uh, in Diary of a Country Priest, you have a young priest who's just continually in trouble. He's continually in trouble. Nobody has time for him in this country parish. And the evil that surrounds him is is striking. There's such malice and cruelty, there's such... I think the the, the theme was reprised in that film Calvary. And, And they're ordinary things, it's just a country area. He, he can't pray, he's having huge trouble with prayer. And he goes for advice to an elderly parish priest in the next parish, and that parish priest is a tough piece of work. He's an old guard parish priest, he takes no guff. He's formidable, but he sees in the young man something that he isn't, and he actually protects him. The young man is actually a saint. And he says to him at one stage, he said, you know why they don't like you? Your innocence, it burns them. Isn't that an interesting observation? Innocence as a fire that burns. Your innocence burns them. Your truthfulness. You see through them. For that, they hate you. Towards the end of the film, it's a, very, it's a tremendously sad story because the young priest has TB and it turns out that he's dying. Something that happened far more commonly than we now think in those days. But he, he, he gets a lift one day with an army officer, a dashing young army officer, who's all that the young priest isn't. The young priest is sickly and sort of wan, sort of scholarly looking. He, he doesn't look at all dashing or physical or anything. But the young officer is a nephew of the local count. And as you know from the film Chocolat, which had a rather different ideological slant, the local count fairly, fairly called the shots in the Catholic Church in France up until lately in country parishes. Irish clergy weren't used to this at all, but basically the parish priest was very afraid of the local noble, who, who you know, would, would have a lot of sway with the bishop, probably was related to the bishop. And his nephew, and he gives him a lift on his motorbike, he's an army officer home on leave. Foreign Legion officer and the Foreign Legions Court, very glamorous. He says to him, you know, he says, my uncle despises you. And the young priest says, ah, yeah, yeah, I, thought he, I thought he might. Yeah. He thinks you're a dirty little priest. But he said, you know, he more or less says to him then, he says, I find you quite interesting. And he's, he's smoking there, talking to him. He said, we're very alike, you and I. And the young priest looks at him, looks him up and down. and He said, how could we be alike? <laughs> and he says, no, no, he says, we both, we live a similar life. He said, I'm a soldier, he said, and soldiers are a rough crowd. And he said, soldiers are constantly cursing and swearing and constantly blaspheming because soldiers believe in their hearts that if God won't save you because you're a soldier, then it's, what's the point? So he said, you end up with a bullet in the belly out in the sand. He's talking about North Africa. And he said, you're there lying with a bullet in the belly. You're dying slowly in the sun and you manage one last blasphemy at God and then you die. That's the way to go, I said. And in a strange way, it's very hard to explain. The young man who's a saint, realizes that the officer is just like him. They both operate by vow and oath on the edge. They have vowed to live on the edge, to die out there on the edge. Now that's the vocation of everybody. It's just that it suits us to forget it. I can't, I've come across a saint. I know I, I tend to turn these podcasts into a laundry bag. I just stuff everything I like into them. But you could look at it differently, okay? It's a Christmas stocking. How about that? That's, a, that? that's much more positive, okay? i come across a saint lately, and I must say, I really... He's not a saint yet, but he will be, I think. And I'm really... Chuffed and pleased at having made the discovery, although I hang around with young Catholics and I'm sure they mention him to me at some stage because they, they know all this He's a young Italian Now you're you're going to say oh Pier Giorgio Frassati No Frassati is deeply impressive Deep the young mountaineer from the 20s was the 30s 30s. Oh very impressive guy No, this is new. He's a computer geek who died in 06. Carlo Acutis From Monza, near Milan. Born in London in 91. Died of leukemia. He died quite soon after diagnosis, so he didn't really have an awful lot of time to think about it. A matter of months, I think, but I might be wrong about that. Died at 15. He's going to be beatified in October. He's already venerable. His remains have been translated. The word has that they're incorrupt, but that's not confirmed. Translated to his favourite church, I think, in Assisi. He had a great love of Assisi and San Francis. Um, A computer geek, a computer genius, highly intelligent, everyday mass, rosary, weekly confession, adoration, you name it. He was doing all that, I think, at, oh, I don't know about the age of seven. Apparently, he could form whole sentences at a few months, I think. The, The guy was seriously bright. You know, he's the kind of computer nerd who'd have probably gone off to rule the world, as most of them have. <laughs> Carlo Acutis. Well, he has gone on to rule the world. He's gone on to rule a rather bigger world because he's one of the saints now in the Te Deum. Who's, well, if he is a saint, only the church can say that, but it's very Catholic to preempt the church on these things. Do you remember the crowd when John Paul was buried? <laughs> Santo, subito! <laughs> they just kept shouting it at them. Saint, now, <laughs> immediately. <laughs> It was the real, it was almost medieval, it was the real sort of reaction of the people, the sensus fidelium. Carlo Acutis. And, and, and I would offer him as an example of this. He offered up his suffering for the Pope. That was Benedict at the time. And I pick him out because he's a young man. I pick him out because like the young, the young priest The old priest tells the young priest in that film, you are a prisoner of the Holy Agony. Which he is. He can't pray. But his whole life is prayer. Thérèse of Lisieux, these people get tested beyond belief. Thérèse of Lisieux went through hell and back, I'd say about 18 months, of uh, finding it difficult even to believe in God we have such examples we have so great a cloud of witnesses do you remember that phrase in the scriptures so great a cloud of witnesses okay we've we've such tremendous examples these prisoners of the holy agony these wearers of the warrior scarlet these demolishers of badgers (laughs) these are the people who did not run frightened from themselves who made the decisions and didn't run from the decisions And I keep saying to you, I can't say it too often to you, you don't be afraid of making the wrong decisions. Once you're in the game, grace, prayer, put it in God's hands, you'll come right. You will come right. But for goodness sake, use your capacity to make decisions. I think now of a man who wasn't a Catholic, although he should have been, the great Japanese author Yukio Mishima, a figure very like, Porick Pierce and an equally very disturbing figure. Mishima was revolted at the selfishness and materialism of Japanese society. And he uh, went back to the samurai ways and he committed ritual seppuku. He disemboweled himself publicly in protest against the disrespect to the emperor. Now, I'm a Catholic. I don't believe the Emperor is the son of a god, but some every Catholic is a hidden monarchist, you know. It's, that's why Catholic republics always treat their presidents like kings. Have you noticed that? Should <laughs> De Gaulle was like a king. <laughs> yeah, we're just instinctively like that. And, and there's something in me that sort of quickens to his love for the emperor. So is the German heritage, so is the Irish heritage. The, the Japanese patriotic heritage is a tremendously dark side. I accept that. But Mishima said once that uh, he, he dreaded an easy death. He wanted to die in agony, so that I will know to my last moment that I am alive. Now, my poor grandmother, who never heard of Yukio Mishima, and if she did, would probably regard him as a pure (laughs) heathen. I would be just scandalized that her, her good boy of a grandson was occupying himself with such nonsense. My grandmother used to finish every rosary with the prayer from a sudden and unprovided death Good Lord, deliver us. Have you heard that prayer? The old people used to pray that prayer. They were terrified of dying in their sleep. They're real believers. A Catholic is terrified of an easy death. And I'm not saying a Catholic isn't terrified of a hard death. I go ape if I slightly burn my finger on the range. Never mind real suffering. That is how they used to pray. They wanted to see it coming. They wanted time to make their peace. They wanted to get their stuff in order, their affairs in order. They wanted to make their peace with God. They wanted to settle the matter of the badger. They wanted to face the wolf. I I can understand it if you come back to me and you say, well, thank God I've left the Catholic Church. I mean, a nutter like you just confirms everything. And I say to you, thank God that you heard a nutter like me, who'd at least Make some attempt to go to the core of the truth of our faith. Have you ever considered what the priest says in mass? Have you ever listened to what he says? Even don't go to the Roman Canon, which is blood-curdling, satisfyingly so. i go to the Third Eucharistic Prayer, which is which is good post-Vatican II, slightly pasteurized, a, a little tamer. And yet, I keep saying the old one. I can't remember. I can never remember the new one unless I'm looking at it. When I say the old one, I mean older version. The one that was supplanted by Benedict's translation. Look with favour on your church's offering. Do you remember that? No, actually put it more clearly. The changes were for the most for the better. Look with favour on your church's offering and see the victim whose death has reconciled us to yourself. Grant that we who are united by his body and blood may become one body, One spirit in Christ, isn't that how it went? That's shocking stuff if you listen to it. Our faith is founded on the torture to death of a 33 year old man who had done no wrong to anybody. Furthermore, consider that that's a purely anthropological view. A secular view. Our faith for us believers is founded on the torture to death of God. This is not a faith where you get to dodge the badger. I'm sorry. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work in Catholicism. You may say back to me, well, if that's the case, there's no hope for me. I bet there is. I have the greatest respect after years as a priest for the suffering of so-called ordinary people. There are heroes out there. And I assure you there are saints. There are saints out there that we haven't discovered yet. People laughed at John Paul II for canonizing so many saints. And indeed, many have been canonized since by Benedict and Francis. But we're only canonising a fraction of the ones that are there. It was because, it was because John Paul understood this. I know that the you know the system was more modern, computers, everything made it possible to conduct the processes. But it's also the fact that the Church is increasingly recognising the abundance of witnesses, the presence of saints. So Carlo Acutis, this totally modern boy, who lived on his computer, and who said the only woman in his life was Our Lady. His mother wasn't a believer or his father, he brought them back to the faith. They would say he saved them. It's worth looking at him. I'm only dipping into this, but, and I know I'm circling around it, but it cannot be considered too often. You'll hear people say about someone who dies in their sleep, it's a lovely death. Well, I would see it as the death I would dread. I want to see it coming. Yeah, I want to meet it in my Wellingtons. I want to face the badger. I want that to be given to me. I'm not judging people who die in their sleep, for goodness sake, they don't choose that. I'm just saying, it's not the death I would ask for. And and I'm, I'm afraid of suffering. Be very aware the, of the extent to which we have narcotized ourselves, the extent to which modern life narcotizes people. With routine, with political correctness, with increasingly sanitized, ritualized, legalized, circumscribed, public interaction, social interaction, where you get to choose your own pronouns. When I was a boy, you were lucky if if the village didn't settle some hideous nickname on you. I went to a boarding school where they always did settle a hideous nickname on you. And the school authorities were powerless to change that. Now, somebody may even begin a conversation by giving you a list of the pronouns that they favor. I've recommended a film, I've recommended some bits and bobs. Could I try you with a book? I don't think I've mentioned it before, but I might have. Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. Along with George Orwell's 1984, must-reads. Both dystopian visions of the future. Must-reads. I do beg you not to deprive yourself of it. And Huxley's vision, some people would regard it as being, if anything, probably a bit closer to the mark than Orwell's. Orwell's was very dramatic, very hideous. Huxley's vision was of a future determined by eugenics, in which people were produced in factories. Industrial society still had to operate at different levels, and people were bred for particular categories, using Greek letters. So the entire world was run by the, the Alpha Ones, I think. The lift on the other hand in those days there were lift attendants in lifts boring job Uh, the lift attendant was a delta b moron that's the category and he had been totally bred and brought up to long for the roof so that his whole life was centered around occasionally taking the lift to the penthouse and this caused him enormous excitement and filled his life with purpose and meaning there is a drug which is dispensed by the state, called Soma. And this drug makes you feel better, reduces your inhibitions, reduces your fears, your anxieties, your worries, your stresses, reduces pain, everything takes them away. You just take a Soma. You just keep taking Soma. It's not as cracked as you might think. The Soviet Union, they say, ran on endless subsidized vodka and cigarettes. Some people say would say that nineteen fifties Ireland would never have survived without aspirin, which was an early form of aspirin. I remember selling it. I remember we selling it in the shop. You remember Simon and Garfunkel? You remember the song Mrs. Robinson? Do you remember the drink in the cupboard, making sure the neighbours didn't hear about it. We had to keep it from the neighbours. Yeah, it's a cruel little song. Jesus loves you more than you may know, do you remember it? Here's to you, Mrs. Robinson, Jesus love. It's a repetition of a sort of a little pious cliche that people would say to each other, but it's said with great sarcasm. But it's highlighting the quiet desperation of people. Apparently there's a huge problem with alcoholism increasing in our country, and it will have increased more because the Irish are drinking at home. And like most Northern peoples, we drink hard. I think the Northern peoples drink harder. I think it's climate. The long, dreary winters, the short summers. I actually have a theory that that's the reason the Northern peoples all have lovely desserts. The best desserts are in the North. The Italians aren't great at desserts, or the Spanish. Endless tiramisu and Macedonia di fruta. No, no, the the Italians aren't great at desserts, they're great at savoury food. It's up in the North with the snow and the sleet and the rain and the muck and the pollen and dragon. It's up in the north, we have amazing desserts. The German cakes, strudel with hot vanilla sauce and, and the English puddings, jam roly-poly with custard and spotted dog and all these things. It's for climate and that's why we drink. It's climate, I'm convinced it's part of it at least. And now, after this lockdown, well I'd say people have spent, I'd say some people have drank their heads off themselves during the lockdown. It's, it's the stuff of anecdote, it's being talked about. It's certainly, this is what I'm hearing back as a lot of drinking went on. A lot of people would say is that people are, uh, women especially, are slipping quietly and respectably and imperceptibly into alcoholism through wine. And I have to come put my hand up and say I've never been a big drinking man. The occasional glass of good whiskey. I really do enjoy, but good whiskey, you know, because the other stuff burns the throat out of you. Good whiskey, but a glass of wine I enjoy. I became fond of a glass of wine in Rome. My father was the same, it's not a virtue with me. I've never been much of a drinker, but I do enjoy a glass of wine, and I could see how it would happen. You come home in the evening, modern life very stressful. And you come home in the evening and you see this. You see where the badger will never be faced. You see where the key things of life will never be faced. You see where the holy agony will never be faced. It'll never be entered into. It can't be entered into because people are being, the Soviets kept people waiting endlessly in queues to give them something to do. And modern life keeps people endlessly moving. You have childcare, you have to be at work at such a time. You come back, you have to pick up the kids from childcare, you have to do all this back and forth between career, children, home, if you're lucky. All of this to service the mortgage. The two cars sure wore out. You are absolutely worn to a thread. You don't have time to bring up your kids, much less face the badger. But the badger doesn't go away. And so, how do we deal with it? How do we deal with our bottomless needs? We deal with it with drink and drugs. We overcome our inhibitions, overcome our suffering, overcome our ennui, overcome the sneaking suspicion that the whole thing is bloody well pointless. That's how we deal with it. Please, please, please be aware of it. The core of life is an absolutely terrifying, utterly exhilarating adventure liminal and profound. The center of life, as the center of the Greek play, is the agon, the contest, the clash, the confrontation. The center of life is where you face the badger, where you earn your warrior scarlet, where you face your demons, where you face your destiny, where ultimately you face your God. And you will meet God. You will meet God where? You will meet God in Moriah, you will meet God where Abraham met him on, the, on that ghastly journey after he'd been told to sacrifice Isaac. That ghastly journey with his son and the son not knowing where he was going and Abraham knowing what had to be done. You will meet God in the holy agony. You will meet God where Jacob dreams and wrestles with God. Do you remember this? And there's a, a debates in scripture because it says an angel, says a man. But it's, it's almost certainly God. And God paralyses him with a a wrestler's blow to the thigh. Gives him a dead leg. He wrestled with God. It's said of Moses at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. They'll never be the like of Moses again. We'll never see the like of him for a prophet again. Who knew God face to face. What a tribute. That he knew God face to face. Do you remember the burning bush? he meets God. You must meet him. You are called to be a mystic and a saint. Look, I'm saying this especially to young people. Please, for God's sake, you're our flesh and blood, you're our future. You must live human lives. You can't stand back from this. May I quote that saint, venerable, soon to be beatified, Carlo Kutis, 15 years old. He said, all people are born originals, but many die as photocopies. We do a dirty little deal. We sell our souls. We lose our individuality. Society puts us through the murder machine, as Pierce called it, and we turn out as Pierce said, stodgy little citizens. We never face the adventure. We never enter the Garden of Gethsemane. We never enter upon the holy agony where, alone, we can actually fully become ourselves and become become fully, fully human. We allow the soma, the drug, the pervitin, the the. The vodka, the cigarettes, the, the, the internet, the YouTube, which is a good thing in itself, but overindulgence. The shopping mall, you, you name it, you name it. The, it's the pub, the, whatever it's to be, whatever, it's to, whatever, whatever your temptation is, whatever it's to be, whatever just puts you to sleep, whatever makes you forget, whatever makes it easy. For, I'm asking you to be Abrahamic. And this is where I draw this to a close. I am asking you to be Abrahamic. you remember where Abraham argues for the fate of Sodom? He tries to do like a barrister argues with God. And at one point, even even tries to teach God. And and is is smooth and clever like an oriental haggler in the bazaar. Uh, Actually, there's a glitch in it. Because at one point, the text says, And Abraham still stood before God. But apparently the ancient text, the scribes found it intolerable. The ancient text read, and Yahweh still stood before Abraham. The God attended upon a human, which was scandalous to the scribes. And Abraham haggled with them and bargained with them and wrestled with them and wrestled with them out at Moriah. Faced him down. This is what you told me to do, I'm going to do it. It's in your hands, it's on you. And God says, "Stop. He has proved himself. The sacrifice is complete. And you remember, he, he, he makes it perfect with the ram. You remember that? The ram caught in the, in the, in the thicket. Jacob wrestles with God. He wrestles. you know like a Greek wrestler. He wrestles with God. And, 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 and we're told, that, what is it, Genesis 18:28, "Your name shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel." for you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. The journey, this struggle, the wrestling, the journey into Moriah of Abraham with Isaac, for the sacrifice, it prefigures the agony in the garden. It prefigures Gethsemane. And Gethsemane must be at our core. It's my favorite mystery. It was always. An American told me once, he said that his father who was Irish, uh, not born Irish, but uh, first generation. His grandfather was, was Irish. But he said his father um, was a real Irishman of his day, an Irish-American of his day. Hard work, church. You know, he, he had tremendous values. But he said he didn't know any mysteries of the Rosary except the Sorrowful. <laughs> he, said, he just kept saying the Sorrowful mysteries. And he said he had no interest in the others. <laughs> he said it was real Irish Catholicism, <laughs> the joyful, out, <laughs> the glorious Harrah. <laughs> he didn't didn't take them seriously at all. The sorrowful mysteries, I think they suited, and probably suit the northern temperament generally. I, I'd say they I'd say a Russian would agree with me. The agony in the garden is the one that really speaks to me. It really speaks to me. You know, the, the sweating 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 blood in the garden. And I think again of what Benedict said about modern man, that he had the option before him of being a believer haunted by doubt or a non-believer haunted by possibility. But modern man, modern woman is, is caught in a paradox. It's a tremendous opportunity. i say more than any generation who have before us, we have the potential to be damned en masse or to produce millions of cents from this time. Because we are absolutely on the edge. Western Europe has apostatized and lost its faith, but it suspects that that has happened, which is interesting. And that comes out in a whole load of different ways. It comes out very much in popular culture, it comes out in films, but we've plenty of time for talking about that down the line. And so I'm going to say to you today, To pull this together, the holy agony, the battle, the clearing in the forest, the confrontation, the agon, the contest. Become yourself. Become, enter upon your heritage. Become the man or woman that God has planned from all eternity. Become the true you. Kill the wolf. Meet the badger. St. Brendan, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.